and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today I'm talking with Kramer Morgenthau, ASC. Kramer has an extensive career. He shot uh, Respect recently, um, Creed II, Fahrenheit 451, um, Terminator Genesis, Thor Dark World, uh, shot a couple episodes of Game of Thrones, shot a couple episodes of Boardwalk Empire. Um, you know, the man has an, an amazing eye, especially in this sort of like fantasy uh, genre I've noticed. And Chef. Oh, how could I forget Chef? Chef's one of my favorite films of all time. I went so far as to tell the man uh, during our conversation. But uh, today we're talking with Kramer about his work on The Many Saints of Newark, which is obviously the uh, prequel to the Sopranos series. Um, and so, you know, he was very gracious with his time, actually gave me an extra half hour of it, uh, in a follow-up interview, just so we could talk a little bit more about the film. Cause we kind of got really into, uh, the conversation about cinematography in general up front. So I uh, really appreciate that from Kramer. And I really appreciate WB, uh, allowing me to see the film a little bit before it came out. So this interview, uh, as you're listening to it, the film just came out. Um, but we did this interview uh, a couple weeks ago. So um, shout out to WB for that. Um, if you're new to Frame and Reference, this is a weekly-ish, let's say, uh, podcast uh, where I interview cinematographers to talk about the work. Um, you, Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you just type in Frame and Reference and go subscribe there and you can listen to more conversations like this. Um, you know, we're up to 35 episodes now or something like that. So uh, you know, it's been a great year for conversations. There's some really amazing ones uh, that I can recommend to you if you'd like. We've, we're also on, you know, Twitter and Instagram if you'd like to follow us there at Frame and Ref Pod, at Frame and Ref Pod. And um, that's how you can, you know, keep updated if you're not just really on it with the uh, podcast subscriptions. What do you call it? Playlist? List of your subscriptions and play, whatever. You know how podcasts work. You're listening to it right now. Um, I'm not going to keep talking, uh, but please do give Frame and Reference a listen and a follow uh, if you enjoy cinematography or just filmmaking in general, because I uh, truly believe it's an excellent product. <laughs> I hate referring to it as a product. Anyway, uh, without, uh, without any adieus to be furthered, uh, here's my conversation with Kramer Morgenthau, ASC. Were you always a um, film person? Were you always visual or, or was, did you kind of fall into it else uh, in a different way? Um, I got into cinematography, I would say maybe later than some people. It's more after college. Um, I was always around filmmaking as a kid. Uh, my dad was a documentary television producer uh, for PBS. So station in Boston uh, where I'm from. So it was around film and filmmaking and uh, my dad had a love of cinema. Um, he had a love of art and music, opera, and ballet, and uh, it's a true, uh, you know, lover of, of art and uh, I feel like that kind of rubbed off on me uh, growing up, but I got into, I wanted to be a musician originally and, uh, and then kind of stumbled my way into cinema. Uh, I was 
at university and um, kind of followed a friend of mine into a history of film class and um, an amazing professor and, you know, it's almost a, a cliche, but, you know, I watched Citizen Kane and uh, I was just floored. And I was like, this, this is it. You know, this is kind of uh, cinema is sort of the culmination of, of everything, um, of music, of dance, of painting, of storytelling, of, you know, um, poetry, um, you know, acting, uh, theater, all kind of comes together with the cinema and uh, it's sort of like the, you know, art form of our, our century as such a young art form. And uh, I just was smitten. And um, after college, I started PAing on films uh, in New York City and uh, started gravitating towards uh, uh, the camera and the visual side of things early on, because that's kind of who I am as a, as a person is more visual and less uh, verbal and uh, kind of tied into the same side of the brain as music, I feel like. And um, also, you know, originally my interest in film was more like political documentaries and I came a little bit disillusioned in, in documentary as a, as a I felt, I felt limited by it and, uh, and by politics um, and uh, kind of wanted to go into kind of a more poetic side of things and um, stumbled my way into cinematography and had no idea if I was any good at it and was in a relationship with somebody at the time was really supportive and was like, you can do this. And I was very, very young and um, in my 20s and would go into NYU at the time. I didn't go to NYU, but you could, you know, at that time before 9-11, you could just walk into any building and right. there was a bulletin board with people looking for cinematographers to shoot their student film. And you just, there was no Craigslist or any, you know, tear off a piece of paper with a phone number. And I shot some student films and for various filmmakers, one of them led to shooting a film in India later on. And, you know, I know some of those people from that time period. And, uh, you know, some of my early breaks were shooting documentaries, uh, music documentaries, um, and uh, little by little cobbling together a reel. And, uh, you know, I don't know where to stop the story, but you know. <laughs> wherever you're comfortable, then, you know, uh, one thing I've, I've talked to a lot of DPs about is um, a lot of people seem to come from sort of a musical background. And I'm wondering, A, like, what was your instrument? But B, where do you see the um, sort of analogous strokes between cinematography and, or filmmaking in general and music? Because I find that, like, especially editing my own stuff, um, 
I like I can't get it together until I have the song underneath it. If it's if that's a, you know the appropriate um, thing, even if it's something that isn't cut to music, it's always like that sets the tone, and then you can kind of the 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 flow and the contrast and everything kind of starts to stick. Um, but yeah, I've I've yet to be able to articulate kind of where um, music and film are so interlinked in my head. Yeah, I think. Uh... I think there are brain studies on that and, you know, left brain, right brain. And, um, uh, because I'm not right brain or I couldn't tell you which side of the brain it is. Actually, sure, yeah, but, yeah, um, me too. It's the same, it's the same side of the brain, um, visual art and, uh, and, and music. Uh, and uh, I could be wrong, but I, I believe that. And um, also, you know, I'm dyslexic, and um, therefore, and I, as a kid, I thought that I was, you know, kind of a loser. And um, and as a, a grown man, it, I learned, you know, after many, many decades, that it's my gift. Mm. And it means that uh, it doesn't mean that I have any less intelligence than anybody else. Um, it means that my brain is wired completely differently than uh, so-called, you know, normies. And um, that you, because you have your brain's wired differently, you things enter your brain in a different way. And maybe you leave, you kind of hear the music and you feel the music. If I hear a piece of music, I hear it again. And my the entire song is playing in my head for days and days and days. And if I see a piece of light and the way it's coming in the window and the way it's kind of bouncing on the floor behind me and coming up and kind of wrapping around me, like I, I record that. And, yeah. um, and so I, it imprints in me differently than words may not imprint. And I may not, interact with, you know, verbal uh, type things in the same way or read uh, quickly, uh, but I can read light very quickly. I can, I can uh, read uh, a musical phrase. And uh, so it's, you know, I don't want to sound too pretentious or no, no. some sort of God's gift to the planet but it's just sort of that's who i am and uh i took me a long time to realize that's who i am and it's actually it's it's a gift it's not a curse it's a and i luckily i found cinematography uh because i have no idea what i would have done you know i would have been a horrible person with an office job if i had to do that yeah i i uh for me it was i i have uh what i've now only very recently, uh, I also have a supportive uh, girlfriend who informed me that I have dyscalculia, which is dyslexia with numbers. Yeah. And uh, that did you experience uh, in school becoming so like in math class, I would get so I would get frustrated at the point of tears because I couldn't explain why math was so uh, like viscerally, I guess, annoying to me. I couldn't I couldn't articulate 
why I needed to get out of this room because everyone wanted me to do stuff that I couldn't do. And that often pushed me towards uh, kind of like you're saying, like art or at, at the time it was uh, computers because those had just sort of came out and they were something I could dig into and, and build almost like Legos and stuff. But um, did you experience that growing up? Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, math was very hard for me, but actually, you know, if you look at dyslexia and even just the word dys, D-Y-S, means, you know, you're fucked up and that. <laughs> I don't even like that. So it's like dyscalculia. Actually, I can do math, but the way I actually add things up is completely different than other people I will take to add something. I'll like, well, it's this one that you stack with this number and this number, and then you bring this number in this way. It's just, again, you're doing, you know, you look at some of the great dyslexics like Albert Einstein. And so, you know, yeah, uh, maybe he, didn't do things normally, but he, because of that, he had a distance from it and had a way of coming in a different way and like kind of uh, could see a big picture. And uh, it's kind of almost like you're, because you can't do it in the conventional way, you see a big picture and then you can step back from a movie that you're shooting and see, you know, not just this light plus that light plus that light, but it's like, you know, what story are we telling? You know, what are these characters feeling? What am I feeling? Why, you know, do I feel like the light should come from here? I can't explain it, but I just feel that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, That's something that I've been, I've been thinking about a lot recently is, uh, you know, um, whatever's normal, whatever's uh, not normal, but whatever is, is currently in vogue, let's say, um, becomes boring. And so whenever people can bring a new, the, I, I suppose that makes sense. The way that you've kind of generally processed the world, if it's slightly off center, probably does make people more interested in, in the way that you think if it's applied, you know, appropriately. No one wants to think, dif- no one wants you to think differently in that office job, but something more creative definitely um, is, a, is, a, is a better approach. But also um, I've really been thinking about how like feeling being like that, that what you're saying about, um, you might not be able to explain it, but the way that you feel maybe light is supposed to be applied in a certain scene or something like that is way more important than the technically correct. Um, I know on, on the lower end, I shouldn't say lower, but the uh, more amateur end of the filmmaking spectrum, like maybe the YouTube sort of generation, there's a lot of um, technically correct. Oh, you should buy this lens because it's the best. You know, you should buy this light because it's the best one. And it's not, there's not a lot of thinking happening. It's a lot more, uh, or not, there's not a lot of feeling happening. There's a lot more thinking that left brain, right uh, brain thing, I think. Um, yeah. and I so, mean, yeah. we all fall into that, you know, trying to, you know, the trend or getting into becoming a gearhead and getting, uh, so immersed in the gear that you forget about what you're, you know, the most important thing is what, it's not the camera, but what's in front of the camera and, you know, it can be any camera and, uh, and any lens and, um, in the hands of, uh, somebody that's, uh, trying to do something special. That's, that's what, I don't know, special, but anyway, trying to do something, it's what you're doing with it. And I don't get excited about 
film stock or, you know, censored. I mean, I do, of course I do, but I don't obsess uh, over it. I don't obsess over it. And I kind of try to actually push away from it. And I kind of have a, it's like a, you know, sometimes I push away and then sometimes I push away too far and I get too distant from it. And I'm like, Oh, oh my God, there's all this new gear and it's incredible. And some of these, like some of these small cameras, uh, are just, you know, like the Sony a seven, it's just sure. At the Sony a seven S three, uh, is that the one? It just, yeah, I think they came out with the four recently, but yeah, that's uh, huge. Just, uh, incredible images uh, and on a Ronin uh, R, R2 or the S2. That sounds right. Uh, I'm not a gamble person really, but yeah, the Ronin. I'm not either, but I recently have gotten into them because we shot a lot of uh, um, previs with the music mm-hmm. numbers on this film I'm on now, just giant musical 50 dancers and song and dance and figuring out how to shoot it. We shot all the songs in prep with um, the Sony A7s and the Ronin. I think it's the R2. R2 and uh, just brilliant. Uh, I would love to make a movie with these, these cameras and you know, it kind of all this other tech is happening and it's happening so fast and it's kind of meeting in the middle and you've got, you know, the iPhone 13 where they're like saying, you Oh, you don't need to be a filmmaker, you know, but hey, you know, it's, it's all interesting. You know, you just don't, you know, think that there's only one way to do things. And, uh, you know, I use these giant cameras and I, I, I see these tiny cameras. I'm like, I get excited. So did like, I can, so I started film school prior to the 5d or the red coming out, like right before. So I, I learned on 16 mil or just like um, uh, mini DV cameras, you know, and I'm wondering, can you imagine what your college experience would have been like if you had an A7 or something like ready to roll, like how, how that would have changed the way they tried to even teach us filmmaking, let alone <laughs> like, cause now it feel, I feel like students are even like now my, my, I went to Arizona state. Apparently the film school has tons of reds now. And they were making us all fight over one 5D back in the day. And so yeah. we had to spend all our time, you know, writing and focusing on story, which is stupid. No one cares about story. We all want to film things. Um, how do you think that would have changed your, like, upbringing in, in film is, is having, like, access to all that equipment? Uh, I think it would have been revolutionary. But at the same time, I think in the end, it's it's the same thing. It is about story. It is about characters. It is about what you're doing with it. You know, I was shooting with Super 8. Uh, I was shooting with, I was shot video, you know, in college, uh, but it was VHS. And, uh, um, but I think I, you know, I think I would have done the same thing with a, uh, uh, an A7S3. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it just would have been a hell of a lot easier and um, probably you would probably would have gone into much deeper direction. You know, I shot a lot of my early stuff on a high eight. Cause that's what yeah, you shoot what's available to you. But I think it's, you know, with all the tech in the world, 
it's still you don't it's it's about the ideas and uh you don't see people breaking through uh just because of the tech you see people breaking through because of the ideas do you think uh that the the immediacy of the you know digital cinema technology um has made or potentially um is making people uh maybe a little complacent like not doing the work um so, you know sort of uh, uh making it's it's so easy to quote unquote make a film now that maybe people aren't focusing on story and i know this is a leading question because this is how i feel <laughs> um and are more just trying to make pretty pictures it does feel that way to me i don't know i don't know if i agree with that i feel like oh perfect uh the technology is forcing people to be because there's such a proliferation of images, uh, it's harder to stand out um, visually. And uh, it's driving people to do more and more interesting stuff. Um, you know, you go on Instagram and you see 100,000 incredible images. So that one image that you make is is it's harder to, you know, there's so much more visual noise, uh, but also some visual brilliance in there. And it's harder to have your works, you know, um, you know, it used to be, you know, there'd be like one movie and you go to the cinema and you see it. Now you go on Instagram and you see a hundred thousand incredible images in the flick of a thumb yeah. uh, or on YouTube, whatever. So it's, you know, it's a, uh, it's a very different landscape um, where used to be one image was very special. And now it's like, it's so easy to make so many images. So um, I think brilliance is coming out of it. And, uh, and I don't know where it's going, but it's kind of, it's, it's going so quickly now and so much more people influencing each other and back and forth across different genres that I think it's, uh, it's, it's making people do better work. Um, sure. Uh, has filmmaking become more style over substance? Yes. Um, but I feel like there's always been good films and bad films and, um, it is easier to do. It's so much easier to do a cool shot than it is to do, tell a, an incredible story. Sure. Um, but uh, ideally, get to work on films where you can hopefully, you know, integrate the two. And, uh, yeah. So. Do, do you, um, when you were coming up, did you have any, like, uh, inspirations or, or maybe mentors that really stood out to you? Um, I, I regret, I never really had a mentor. And uh, I, most uh, people haven't. So I, I don't know. Uh, if maybe regret is the pro is uh, something you should feel because it seems like all y'all amazing DPs no one no one led you no one held your hand on the way up. Yeah, I wish I, I did, um, and I didn't come up in a traditional way. So I'm I'm an autodidact, and um, I'm not like really proud of that. But it's I would never have admitted that when I was starting out. Um, but. Uh, I taught myself and um, I didn't, I went to film school, but I, it was theory and criticism and history. 
And I'm actually glad uh, that I studied film as literature versus film as technique. Mm. Uh, I learned the technique later by doing it. And, um, yeah, I wish, I wish I had a mentor. I've had some people that mentored me, uh, along the way. Um, Russell Carpenter, uh, was a, uh, a great teacher who I, I studied with at the main workshops and went to him for advice after that. Um, and that's about all I can you know say. Um, Those main workshops are great. Oh, just I don't know if they're still going, but uh, yeah, no. The um, um, Yedlin almost just did. I signed up for Yedlin's uh, a few months ago, and then he had to cancel because he's working on some, which sucked. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Yedlin's. I mean, genius. Really, <laughs> I, I feel really stupid around him. So <laughs> I think I think everyone does <laughs> just going on his website i'm sure you've read articles uh, on his website it's impossible i can't even follow it but i you know i follow, i get it and, I, and it influences what i do um but it uh god i just it's a very different um he's just a genius and i, I can't even hold a candle to anything that you know technically he's doing it's just i don't know he's a whole nother level what is it like um, being in the uh, ASC in regards to like the camaraderie? Because I know you're saying you didn't have any mentors, but I know mentorship is a large part of that um, uh, group. Do you guys kind of um, mentor each other in any way? Or is there like I know there's like hangouts, but I've never actually been to the, the clubhouse. I, I live in L.A., but I've never actually been up there. Um, what's that dynamic like? Uh, you know, being in the ASC is a uh, incredible, you know, thing and uh, something. You know, as I was a struggling cinematographer, you know, reading the magazine as a, you know a twenty year old, I never thought I'd be you know part of that group of people. And yes, you, you can call anybody up and. Uh, it's, you just have access to all these incredible people. And yeah, we mentor each other. We call each other up. We support each other. Um, it's very, you know, um, it's just a lot of love there, you know, and a lot of uh, friendships. And, um, you know, it's just, just the access you have to this incredible group of people is, uh, I, I can't can't say enough about it do you feel uh are you kind of like fangirling when you <laughs> meet these people because i assume you know if, if you get the uh the comma asc after your name you're like i i i belong here but i know personally if that were ever to happen to me i'd be like i don't know why i was invited <laughs> oh yeah i mean you know i've been in asc i think for you know, over a decade uh, uh i still feel like you know intimidated by some of the cats that walk in there and I, shy you know it's like being at a you know high school party and you're like shy to go talk to the popular guy or you know yeah. the guy just came in you know and you know just shot this incredible movie and you want to talk to him but he's like surrounded by all these people and, you know it's it's just it's just life you know um, 
there's a uh, something that I think affects everyone, regardless of, of art form, and that is a confidence uh, in not only in yourself, but in your craft. Um, do you remember if there was like a moment or maybe a project where you walked on set and you were finally like, you know what? Uh, I know that I can do this and I'm, I'm not going to stress about it too much. Or is every every shoot kind of like a new stress? Uh, I think it took years and years and years of I've been doing this for 25 years and uh, it took years and years and years of shooting to get to the point where I'm not completely freaked out the night before. Uh, like I would, you know, in the early days, I would not, the night before the first day of shooting, I would not sleep. I couldn't. And I still, when I work, I kind of live and breathe uh, the project. And um, I am in a kind of constant state of anxiety. Um, But that is, I've learned from years that that is who I am. And that's kind of makes me what I would like to think I'm good at what I do. And um, it's a drive also. And it's, um, and I realize the anxiety is not necessarily, it's kind of maybe, you know, uh, there's, there's some good things about it. And there's also some things that I need to, you know, maybe, work on like the border, but it's, uh, it's also like, don't fight it. You know, it's part of who you are. And, you know, uh, I can, I can now go to sleep, uh, at night, um, for the first day of work or before a big sequence. And, you know, um, but don't, you know, beat yourself up over being anxious about the work. If you're not anxious, be just walking in like i'm joe cool and you know maybe you're not you know taking it seriously you know it's it's such a huge responsibility to shoot a movie you know to be given the uh blessing and the support to shoot a film for somebody um that you know you gotta uh, you know feel the weight of that and um so I think there's a, you know, it's okay to, you know, be a little wound up, uh, but also don't take yourself too seriously and um, create an environment on set that people feel comfortable that you're not like this crazy intense person that can't just like deal, you know, and uh, you got to kind of just, you know, surf it you know, surf the anxiety and use it as a a drive to, you know, make better choices to really, you know, think through, you know, I go to bed and I'm like replaying the entire day of shooting and then uh, advance playing what I'm going to do the next day and how I'm going to approach this and then come in and, you know, hopefully, you know, be able to lean into it. And it's a, when I'm on set, it's almost like a trance. It's like a high, and I'm in this like creative space constantly, and uh, for like twelve hours straight. And then I come home and it, uh, yeah, the surfing it is a great way to describe that because it's both something you're acutely aware of, but also can't think of. Like I'm, you know, I've only surfed a couple times. I snowboard a lot, 
Um, and uh, I can't imagine ever thinking about snowboarding. I, like I literally strap in and then just go and then it's all, you know, it's it's like uh, you're finding targets that you need to avoid or hit if you're trying to have fun. But like uh, it's it's not like, all right, now left foot forward, right foot back. OK, am I standing correct? You know, it's it's all feeling. Yeah, you can't if you think about the left foot and then you're going to crash into the tree. Yeah, um, you got to, you know, instinctually know that the left foot is positioned in a way that can articulate the board and, you know, but you're not thinking about it. And so I, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I've never, I have never snowboarded, by the way. Or Very fun. Give it a shot. Uh, um, you had mentioned being, uh, you know, working for 12 hours a day. And, and uh, I would kind of be remiss to not ask about this because it's um, it's happening as we speak, more or less. But the IATSE strikes, um, you know, people wanting to not work 12, 16 hour days, wanting uh, better pay and uh, not having you know, weekends taken from them. Were you, um, I assume you've experienced that kind of work environment. Was, has that made it uh, difficult for you to have family or friends or anything like that? Have you kind of had to devote your life to the art form? Because I know everyone, every DP who's, uh, you know, at a higher step than I has pretty much mentioned, like, don't, uh, don't assume you're going to have a family. You know, this, this is your, this is your life now. Yeah. Um, God, there's so many, you know, things to talk about there, but, uh, first of all, I 100% support, uh, my IOTSE brothers and sisters and, um, and the crews that I work with and, uh, uh, 100% behind, uh, this movement and want to express solidarity. Um, with them and, uh, and pro strike, um, and, uh, the work hours are, uh, you know, horrible, uh, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a whole nother subject to get into. Um, and then also having a life, uh, I didn't have a life for many, many years, and now I have uh, a wonderful wife, um, Tracy, and six-year-old twins, and we all travel together uh, on projects and, you know, keep the family together. And, uh, you know, this is unlike any other business, and uh, it's, you know, it's all-consuming, and it is very difficult to have a life. Uh, I think it is possible and uh but it's also a choice you know it's a choice I've made to to do this work and I do it because I love it and uh but now um I realize hey, this isn't everything and it's uh you know you gotta think about what you want to do while you're on this life you know on the, on this planet for this very very short period of time yeah and what's you know what's the most important thing um and uh, the hours used to be much worse. So they've actually gotten somewhat better in some ways. And, um, you know, keeping things under 14 hours uh, was like a big deal. And um, 
So now we rarely go over 14, but I mean, 14 is, you know, insane for most people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's not, uh, you got to think about your mental health and your physical health and, uh, all these things, but, uh, there's a lot to talk about here. That's a big story, but uh, yeah. Uh, well, and the reason I ask is just because you're closer to it than I. I, you know, I was I was talking to a teamster last night, and I was asking him like uh, the same question because me like me going, uh, yeah, I stand with IATSE is like a fucking tadpole coming out of the sink at a sushi restaurant and going, yeah, fuck him up. Like I don't, I have no, <laughs> I have no skin in the game. I'm so far away from like a union set, um, and so I, I don't know how to like both you know support people who are doing a job that i would like to do but also not seem like a complete uh dork you know it, it's like people- it's, a, it's a it's a fine line that uh cinematographers play because we are below the line but we're sort of right on the line and um we're leaders and we need to you know support our crew and because Cinematography is not a uh, one-man band. It's you know you're you are uh, working with a collaborating with a tremendous group of incredibly skilled people, um, union technicians in the United States, uh, and uh, you know we got they support us and we support them and you know I am them. I am a union member, and uh, so I 100% support them. And it's not just about the hours, but it's about uh, pay for streaming, which is even a bigger Because uh, it's still point. considered new media, right? It's still yeah, like, ah, we don't know. Not. We don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> it's not. It's, it's, it's an interruptive uh, business that's completely uh, interruptive in a you know, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just, it's right. completely changed the entire uh, business model in Hollywood. And it's not Hollywood anymore. Silicon Valley drives cinema now and, um, and, and television and television is not television, television is streaming. And it's brought so much great work and so much great filmmaking and all the people that made uh, you know, adult uh, kind of dramas that are not, you know, action movies and have gone to streaming. It is a beautiful thing. Streaming yeah. is fantastic. Apple, Netflix, Amazon, HBO Max. I mean, these this is golden age of filmmaking. So I, you know, let's not brought so much work so it's just about you know finding the balance and um the struggle between labor and management is as old as uh time itself (laughs) industrial revolution uh you know and the birth of you know all these things so this is nothing new um, and it's, it's about finding the balance. The streaming age definitely has like there are, I never used to really be a TV show guy. Um, I, if like the show was coming out and I could watch it like breaking bad, I remember I was, I was, uh, just out of college, uh, when that came out and I was, you know, there for every episode, but, uh, <laughs> kind of getting on topic with the movie you're here to promote. 
I never watched The Sopranos because I didn't have HBO and uh, it got too long for me to like go back and watch it all. I just felt like I didn't have the time. Um, but now it's like because it's all available, there's so many amazing shows, movies, but shows that are coming out on these streamers that are like um, fantastic and they, they get the budget that like a film would have gotten and it's so much fun to, as a consumer. And Sopranos was the show that broke peak television and David Chase um, created an anti-hero, um, a non-conventional television series where sometimes in an episode, nothing happens, but it's brilliant um, where you can be empathic towards a character that is absolutely you know, a monster, but you can find something and connect with him that led to characters like uh, uh, Walter, Walter White. Uh, it led to characters like, uh, you know, the, the wire uh, shows like uh, um, Ozark. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it was groundbreaking, groundbreaking show. So, to have shot a prequel for that film was that show was a you know, huge honor and a huge fill shoes to be filling. So uh, I I was uh, given the opportunity to go to the WB lot and catch a screener um, of oh, the man. film. So jealous uh, how you know I really want to. I haven't seen it with an audience yet. I you know I color timed it. I've watched it many many times, but have yet make it to a cinema. So the I, I unfortunately come from two minds. One is I don't really know what was going on, <laughs> and two, I luckily you know luckily I was there to to kind of uh, take notes on the cinematography. It looks fucking incredible, man. Uh, that first, did you have any photographic um, influences for the first for like the '60s era? Because it has this very um, I got like Fred Herzog books and like uh, Stephen Shore and stuff like that, and, and it has that kind of um, I guess low contrast. There's this very evenness to the color and to the lighting that is that is uh, really pretty. And I was wondering how you kind of approached that first, maybe like half third of the film. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's two different looks in the movie. Um, there is sort of the first part, which is 1960s, and then there's a kind of act break or time cut where uh, Johnny gets out of prison and you see the older Tony Soprano, who's Michael Gandolfini. So there's a time cut, or I don't know what the word, time transition to the 70s. And that was a different look. So I had two lookup tables that I built uh, with my DIT, Matt Selkirk, or he built them. Um, and uh, I have to do a Zoom call in 15 minutes, another Zoom call. Okay, we'll, we'll hard out you. Um, if you want to continue it later, I'm happy to as well. But um, Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, and that was based on Kodachrome for the 60s um, and Ektachrome for the 70s. And, um, but the Kodachrome, you know, Kodachrome can be a pretty contrasty stock. And I wanted to, I'm kind of leaning away from 
in this picture from the sort of really hard blacks, I was kind of going for sort of more like a silky veiled blacks. Um, I kind of feel a little bit like the time period and um, sort of something bringing you into a feeling of time where it's just not this sort of like hard, hard, hard blacks. Um, and there's more color and more uh, use of reds and golds and that kind of thing in the 60s and yeah sure uh, photographic you know research and people like Saul Leitner and um, that kind of thing and films that I referenced were you know I mean Godfather 1 is kind of like uh Sermon, star. <laughs> sermon on the mount you know uh it's the the north star of of, of gangster uh filmmaking and uh also harris Savitti's work on like the, the yards and on american gangster uh was a huge inspiration um and use of top light and uh tremendous amount of top light and just, you know, single source, very minimalist um, lighting approach, um, but uh, working with a lot of color and uh, color contrasts. And Because uh, that is one thing, like, the, I, I guess that must have, I guess that's both costuming and, and, and probably the LUT, but there's this very defined... Um, color uniformity in each colors in each color um you know skin tones are like kind of one thing shirts are like one thing but and it's all it's very uh it's just really pretty and i, I was sitting there half like throughout most of the film like fuck i want to i want to do this especially top light like the all the top light looked really good um i'm a big fan of top light what was like an average sort of setup for you it, like maybe in some of those interiors like in the house and stuff like that um, the prison the prison scene was pretty as fuck <laughs> thank you thank you yeah uh well the prison the visiting was, room yeah uh, the the visiting room was uh basement location of us i think maybe a school in can't remember where in the manhattan uh, new york metropolitan area uh maybe uh north Anyway, uh, I think very northern part of Manhattan or the Bronx. Hmm. And, um, you know, it was uh, top light fluorescence and um, just massive uh, array of HMIs coming through the windows. Um, I think through magic cloth or no, it was uh, hard. Uh, but just an array of, uh, I don't know if they were 6Ks, 9Ks, 4Ks, I can't remember. There's a whole bunch of them. Sure. Um, and uh, and then the top light was, again, every set had, you know, soft boxes built over them, whether they were um, state, the house was a stage. And... Um, you know, it's all just kind of all LEDs, all S60s everywhere. 
through magic cloth, uh, pop light soft boxes. We're punching right through the muslin of the set ceilings. Um, and, uh, you know, just keeping it as simple as possible, but uh, just single large soft sources. And, um, that was top, just just trying to make things feel less keyed and more sort of ambient type yeah. of lighting. Was um were you always shooting sort of in overcast or was that managed somehow or was that like maybe a digital effect? Because it seems like all the exteriors were incredibly even. Yeah, that was a huge, huge challenge. Uh, I thought, you know, shooting in New York, I'd be like, oh, it's going to be overcast all the time because it's, you know, the Northeast. And uh, it was a tremendous amount of hard sun that I did not expect and got completely. Uh, there's a beach scene where I'm shooting in clouds, I'm shooting in sun, I'm shooting in clouds again. The sun's here, the sun's over there. You know, we have people in the water um cameras in the water uh you know it was uh probably the most challenging scene ever shot in my life and we had to really muscle with it in the di to get it all to all kind of sit in a place that felt like it's a slightly surreal looking scene as a surreal moment yeah um and then uh the exteriors you know very very hard to use fly swatters in uh i was shooting in the outer burrows boroughs and in the outer boroughs of Manhattan, there's still, um, uh, power lines, you know, um, telephone poles with power lines. Uh, so it's very hard to get a fly squatter in safely. So, uh, yeah, so again, something just unexpected because in Manhattan, there's no telephone poles. So it's all underground, all the power, but in the outer boroughs, which is where you find, places that look like New Jersey because things haven't changed there where as in anyway. And so you couldn't do fly squatters most of the time. And so we did some things with uh, mattresses, you know, the, um, the floaty uh, balloons. Yeah. Like a balloon, uh, but for diffusion, you know, right. But I forgot the word, but it's a, like air mattress normal. works for me. <laughs> yeah. Air, you know, air star mattress shaped, uh, thing that you could kind of float over the actors and hold down with lines, but it's tricky as soon as you get a gust of wind and you have, you know, but it was, uh, we did as much as we could to control the light and feel like it was overcast. And sometimes we got lucky with overcast light. Um, and just, uh, you know, definitely the vibe we were going for was, was overcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause yeah, I was watching the whole thing and I was like, damn, did they really schedule like, cause you can't, I, was there any like digital sky replacement or anything? Or was it all just like you kind of picked your angles and figured it out? It was all pick, picking the angles. And definitely there is maybe tiny bit of sky replacement, maybe one shot. Uh, there is also a shot on the beach scene where we lengthen the shadow to make it look like it was later in the day. I think one shot because it was, the light was suddenly hard and super toppy and they're walking, we actually changed the shadow. Wow. Yeah, um, but it's not 
we did not have a huge visual effects uh, budget. So it's not like, oh my God, every shot's been reworked. It's, you know, it's in camera. That's awesome. It's, you know, choosing, you know, working with your first AD to schedule stuff, you know, uh, it's a huge, yeah. uh, it's a management thing, but it's, 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 it helps you find your art. You know, you're, like I said, we're, we're a crew and, um, you can't do it by yourself without, you know, managing the whole machine to get, uh, get the right time of day. It's a, you know, there's so many moving parts with the actors scheduled and this and that, and the kid, you know, turns into a pumpkin that, you know, after six right. hours, you know, all this stuff. One thing I did want to talk about is I really like the approach that you took, uh, in the film to the night scenes. They 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 looked stylized, but at the same time very like classic. And I was wondering if you had a generalized sort of, um, I, I guess, approach to to shooting the night scene, specifically the riot scene. I thought looked really um, compelling. I suppose. Yeah, um, the approach to nights. I'm always looking for a way to shoot nights that looks less lit and um, you know, kind of feels more environmental than like a big backlight and a front light. And, you know, um, sometimes it's just hard to do that, uh, in a, you know, especially on a real practical location that the riot scenes of, uh, night exterior work was shot on a real location in New Jersey, in Newark, New Jersey, very close to where the riots happen, if not where they actually happen. Um, and we built all the storefront, you know, built into all the storefronts, period, correct. You know, it was a like a four block, uh, you know, four way intersection. And every way you looked was beautifully art directed by our production designer, Bob Shaw, a big movie marquee with, you know, real bulbs, uh, tungsten bulbs lit into it. Um, I use a lot of LEDs, uh, but in this case, I did have giant backlights, uh, which were condors with maxi groups, uh, two 12 light maxi groups, um, and, or maybe three and, uh, on dimmers that were kind of brought down, uh, and sort of had like this giant warm backlight that kind of blended with the fires, um, and that was kind of my approach for for, and they're on all on all four ways. So any way you looked, and sometimes you could even crossfade from one condor to another. So the backlight stays a backlight. Um, and I can't remember if I had balloons or how I did the ambient sort of. I had oh I had lights on top. Now I'm remembering lights on tops of buildings. Um, mm because it was very hard to use condors or balloons because uh, of power lines. And so we had sky panel 360s on rooftops um, and just trying to make it feel like it's, you know, of part of the environment versus like a lit night scene. And, um, and then we changed out all the street lights uh, to oh, wow. period correct uh, Cobra heads from the time and inside the cobra heads, uh, 
can't remember what we did if we switched out uh, or we clamped on, you know, uh, par cans onto the Cobra heads and then painted them out later in post. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly, how, you know, each location is a little bit different, but um, that kind of thing. And then lights, you know, inside storefronts and uh, lots of fire sources, which would be... Right. Sky panel 360s with a fire effect built into them, um, and sometimes real flame bars and uh, and real fire happening in the frame. Um, have you shot anything where uh, you did like you know maybe replace the um, uh, street lights and then and then ended up using like real uh, high pressure sodium or anything like that? Because that always reminds me of like nighttime back in the day, but the color rendition obviously is crap and digital cameras don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely uh, done that and uh, used high pressure sodium. I felt like even though high pressure sodium vapors may have actually existed in the 60s, I felt like street light should be white and it feels cleaner and more period and more kind of black and whitish. Hmm. Um, versus a kind of like warm colors, but, uh, you know, I've done a lot of stuff with real sodium vapors and, um, you know, they're just really challenging to control, and, uh, but they look great because they kind of have that sort of dirty light quality to them. And I'm always trying to get something that's dirtier and not so clean movie looking. And, um, you know, I've done things more recently where I'm using either digital Sputniks inside of, uh, of, uh, Cobra heads, uh, which weren't quite punchy enough. Um, I did a thing recently, uh, with acorn lights, which are like the street lights that are shaped yeah. like horns that you see in on the East coast and putting four Nix bulbs inside those, uh, which are, uh, Astera and Y axes. Um, and then most recently on a location we've, put 2K bulbs, uh, 2K tungsten bulbs inside of a Cobra head, which is sort of the old school way to do it. And it looks pretty great. Yeah. Um, going from like the exteriors to the interiors, like even in those nighttime scenes, but in general, I noticed there was a very sort of, um, uh, you know, cool blue, very specific blue look to a lot of those nighttime interiors versus uh, a lot of the film is quite warm. Were you... Um, Obviously that, well, I guess I should ask, it, um, or is that just a straight tungsten daylight kind of difference and then it's pulled out in the grade or were you gelling, um, using a lot of gels or something like that? Um, uh, it's, uh, it wasn't a lot of gelling happening. I don't uh, need to gel that much with LEDs. Um, sure. One of the beauties of them. But there is a lot of mixed light, which I love to use. But the way the light rendered in the lookup table was had this really, you know, mixing warm tungsten interiors with very cold backlight. And that to me is just the way things really look and the way old film stocks would not handle mixed colors as well. And I kind of wanted, so the outside would go kind of, instead of blue, it would go kind of cyan and the inside instead of going warm, it would kind of go what we would call like a Jersey yellow which is sort of mm -hmm. like dirtier kind of more like um, photographic, uh, you know, 
photochemical kind of um, way of handling kind of not perfect color. So there's a lot of jer the colorist, uh, Peter Doyle, he nicknamed it Jersey Yellow. And, and then the outsides would go kind of green. And even when we're on stage, uh, which is the house location, which was Tony Soprano's row house, was the entire build. And I'd light the outside, the backing, overexposed because you see like the neighbor's house he actually built the neighbor's house next door like oh, a wow. facade of it and even like a window with a, a bulb in it that you could see out and that was kind of lit cold blue if it was day and overexposed and you could just barely make out that there's a house there and as you would if you're exposed for the inside and then and then lit with tungsten on the inside um, just lots, like lots of mixed color. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I've always been fascinated by, especially recently, is the use of mixed color and specifically the interplay between how you, uh, I guess not rate your camera, but what you set your camera's white balance to versus what you set the lights to. Because like you said, LEDs, you can really move it around. So you don't have to be at 32 and 56. You can be at 27 and 65 or 27 and 56 or whatever. Um, how did you go about, uh, handling that? Were you just kind of rating it like 43, 4,500 and letting the sources kind of be standard or were you trying to pull that apart more? Uh, if it's a day interior and I'm on stage, it really depends on the location, but generally I would rate it camera 3,200 and let the outside go blue and the inside go tungsten. If I was feeling unsure you know you go 43 because it's like you can go anywhere you want but it's you know it doesn't it almost doesn't matter where you set the camera because it's metadata and um it's going to be you can slip it around but where you put your sources is critical and the farther you spread them apart the harder it is to get them if you want to change your mind you can't so uh, i would i sometimes spread them really far apart like 2200 for the tungsten and 8,000 for the, you know, so you really have a, but then you're like, you built in this huge mix and yes, you can slip your color temperature around, but I, I generally don't change my color temperature um, to a middle of the ground. I keep it either one extreme or the other and mostly around 3,200 depending. Sure. You got to get um, a specific scene, but yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'd have to, uh, that's the one thing that sucks about seeing screeners without like the, the one nice thing about seeing them at home was like, I could pause it and like take a picture with my cell phone or like screenshot it and like memorize. Cause some of these notes, like right here, I have beach lighting. All right. I, you know, we talked about that yesterday. Uh, Christmas tree colors. No idea what I meant by that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's, it's a little troublesome sometimes to remember. Um, I was reading the little uh, sort of blurb you had in um, the American cinematographer magazine about your influences and uh you know a lot of cinematographers cite Caravaggio and and whatnot and you were saying that you had um you were really into that sort of very contrasty deep shadow look and then kind of transitioned out of that was that due to sort of modern sensibilities um you know modern technology soft lighting becoming more in vogue or was that more of like a professional um thought process and change because this film is very pr pretty even and um soft yeah i feel like it's just uh, how i evolved as a person but also seeing you know influenced by other things around me it's like you know i feel like 
to try and make everything look like Caravaggio and never change is sort of, uh, you know, you, you grow as a person and it's like, yeah, I really love really dark blacks and really bright whites. I mean, of course I do. And sometimes it's good, but if you just do that all the time on everything, then it, you know, you want to kind of feel the material and feel what feels right. And I wanted to feel like, you're back in a time period, but you're not in a Caravaggio painting. You know, you're in 1960s Newark in some sort of, you know, somewhat uh, intense, you know, row housing neighborhood that, you know, you're in there shooting with a, a Leica and some Kodachrome in your camera or, you know, it's, uh, what is it going to feel like? Does it, does it feel like, you know, Christ on the cross or does it feel right. like, no, I mean, it's like, you know, and, uh, I feel like I just evolved, um, as an artist and, uh, I'd like to think of myself as an artist and I feel like I evolved and, you, you know, deep crushy blacks and, um, a shaft of light, single shaft of light, all a Greg Tolland is amazing, but, um, Sometimes it's just calling attention to yourself too much. Sometimes it's just about maturing as a person, uh, let alone a cinematographer. It's like, you know, um, you know, I want to use my voice in more subtle ways and more nuanced ways and taking cues from somebody as restrained as David Chase, you know, who, you know, writes, you know, you could, write these gangster stories any kind of way really on the nose or you could be really subtle and existential and that is kind of more what i feel like he was going for it's like you know what you walk away from the movie is you know do you learn a lot about the evolution of these characters uh yes you do but you also kind of walk away feeling like what does it all mean what does any of this mean it's kind of a question being asked in the movie yeah and what does deep blacks mean? Why all over time? <laughs> yeah. And certainly you could, you know, like you're saying that like your godfathers or whatever you could, that would change the the vibe sort of of the story. I wonder, uh, I'm, I'm interested in your opinion. Do you feel like, cause if uh, a young cinematographer starting out, you know, real talented person was able to be that sort of, um, uh, delicate with their lighting and delicate with their work. Would that then make it harder for them to stand out coming up, especially nowadays with, um, you know, it's kind of like the flashiest thing gets the most attention for the 10 seconds. Anything gets attention these days. You want to, you want to do something that's appropriate in the time that you're in. And if it, in the time that you're in, that you want to stand out. Uh, I don't know if doing Caravaggisti lighting even stands out anymore. It's like, it's people have seen it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you want to maybe do something where you explore color, you mix color temperatures, which is kind of like, and do like subtler, you know, I, I feel like I, you know, you, you want to build a, a real look and a vibe. And I, I'd like to think that that's, you know, where that movie went. Um, you know, you want to do something where it's, yeah, you want to stand out, but um, you can stand out in other ways and doing Caravaggisti lighting and, but you can also stand out by doing that because it is very, you know, it just jumps off, off the page or off the screen, I should say. 
Yeah. Well, and a tough, that was a tough question. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. You're, you're breaking my balls. <laughs> sorry. Well, the, the thing I was thinking was like at my, at my level, which is relatively low, it's always like, I'll get clients who are like, can we just get a drone? I, I was editing this thing the other day that I shot that they ended up not using at all. And we spent months on it because there just wasn't enough drone shots. And I was being like, I was, I was pretty proud of the, it was, you know, it was to sell an apartment complex, but I was pretty uh, proud of, or not to sell it, but to get people to live there. And I was pretty proud of like the cinematography I did, but the guy just kept going like, can we get more drone shots in there? And then we just kept putting drone shots in there. Cause he thought that was like the cool way to, to be for him to be uh, seen. Right. And that, mm-hmm. and I found that frustrating and that's kind of more where I was going like that's standing, standing, you know. Drones have become so ubiquitous that I don't even like now I'm watching something. I don't. Okay. Drone. It's great. It's incredible. You you know, 10 years ago, you would not have been able to do that on anything, let alone a real estate video. And now it's like, you know, you see it and you know, see it everywhere. So it's, you gotta do something, you know, powerful with the drone. You know, is it like starting outside and, going through the window and through, you know, I saw this one drone video that's in a bowling alley. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I want to do that on the film I'm on now, but you can't because it's, there's safety issues um, with around actors and drones, but to be able to have the drone, you know, fly around the space like a, you know, superhero is, is incredible. Um, and the- that, you know, that would be dope. <laughs> it would. But I, I also think like that, that kind of speaks to a theory I've had, which is, and going more to saying that uh, I like the way you've handled the film better than trying to stand out, so to speak, is that uh, a, a more mature sensibility to anything begets um, sort of uh, the idea that someone knows what they're doing versus the bowling alley video. Very impressive, but uh, perhaps uh, flashy for no reason we learned that the drone pilot's really cool but if that was supposed to sell the bowling alley i don't know what the bowling alley was called i don't know if right what was that video for you know yeah it was about it was a demo of ability you know it was a yeah. and it was you know i thought it was virtuous virtuosic it was um, amazing yeah yeah i mean it, like whoever that drone pilot was he's a virtuoso and it's probably you know a 23 year old kid and his you know, whatever. I have no idea. Or you could be a military pilot. I have no idea. You don't know on the internet what's where stuff is. You know. The other that, thing too about that video, uh, that the sound design, great precision, and the sound design. Yeah. You, and you just don't think about it, but it's it. That was, you know, that was the avant-garde of, of filmmaking to me. And to yeah. integrate that into a narrative would be incredible. Oh yeah, I mean, I, just to get it out of the way because everyone's going to want to know what was your um, uh, just camera and lens package on there, and what was kind of the thought process specifically in the lenses with going through there? Because it is it is a relatively clean film, but you can tell that the anamorphics are doing some some fun stuff yeah. there. Um, it is Panavision T series anamorphics that were detuned to look like C series um, or tuned to look like C series. Um, by Dan Sasaki and it is a Alexa LF um, studio LF because at the time we couldn't get a, a mini LF. 
they weren't quite out yet. This was two years ago when there was just like a few of them and uh, we couldn't get one on time. And so for the Steadicam, uh, unfortunately, my Steadicam operator had to fly the studio, which was a bit. Oh, of no. And we also had a mini, a regular mini that we, I said, you can just use that if you, for something. He's like, uh, and he did in the beginning and then he was like, wanted to, you know, keep the, the large format. So, um, my Keith coach, Steadicam operator, uh, extraordinaire. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was the kit. And then we, you know, did a lot of stuff to massage texture into the image through the glass, through the lookup tables, through the adding of uh, a company called Live Grain, um, through the addition of Gate Weave, uh, which kind of, which I talked about before. I don't know if I did or not. And, uh, and all kinds of uh, tricks that uh, Peter Doyle uh, massaged into the image. Do you, um, do you find that you're obviously the LF is a gorgeous camera and, and large format, um, sensors are, are becoming more and more ubiquitous. Do you find that that is a look that you really would like to stick to and, and sort of super 35 is great, but I like the LF thing or is, or is it more just like a situational choice? Uh, I think for for the big screen, uh, the big sensors are great. I feel like I shot a lot of movies on regular thirty five sensors, and that were like great. And so um, I wasn't shooting those and thinking, "Oh my god, I, I need a larger sensor." It just kind of it's like you know when they came out with the iPad, nobody was thinking, oh my God, I need an iPad. You know, they created something nobody needed and then all of a sudden everybody needed it. So it's it's fantastic. Uh, it allows all kinds of different um, options uh, optically. It's also very challenging optically. Um, and it also kind of forces you to relearn all of your lenses because you're so used to, you know, oh, a 50 millimeter lens is this. And now it's like, well, a 50 millimeter lens in 3.2, you know, uh, 6K, you know, this size sensor, this size, there's like everything is sort of, you know, all the formats are uh, kind of all over the place now, but it's okay. You kind of start to find your, your hero lens again. And uh, that would probably be a 40 millimeter anamorphic in large format, which is very very wide but still has a kind of normalcy to it yeah the uh the one nice thing because like i said this is c500s with large format and uh the put, slapping an anamorphic on there does really like that extra height real estate really does um keep the integrity of the image while still giving you that that anamorphic look you know um instead of stretching out little little guy um we're it the half hour goes so fast. Uh, I like to wrap up for, Oh, before I do, I really wanted to say chef is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, great job on that. Um, uh, yeah, I just had to throw that out there. Um, I like to end every, uh, podcast kind of asking the same couple questions and it has changed recently, but you haven't heard the podcast. So uh, it doesn't matter. You won't notice. Uh, <laughs> um, I will now. I will. Yeah. In the end, I, yeah. 
Um, so first question being, uh, what is a piece of advice, whether it be in the past or recently, that really stuck with you um, that maybe appreciably changed the way you approach your job or, or maybe even your life, but, you know, cinematography? And then secondly, what is a film that you think more people should see or just something that you'd recommend someone go grab on Blu-ray and check out? Besides, obviously, the film you're promoting. <laughs> um, I think a piece of advice, you know, maybe personal advice, I've, you know, is uh, don't take yourself too seriously. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, nose to the grindstone um, approach to being a cinematographer, you, you you're looking down all the time or you're, you know, you're too uh, myopic to see the big picture, to see the big picture around me. Even sometimes I'll just like walk a circle around the set, um, around the soundstage or even go around the block and come back and you see like all this infrastructure and condors and power and people that are there, you know, supporting this, this vision that you're trying to pull in, it's like you're, you're part of a, it's a collaborative art form. It's a, it's, you know, it's team-based, um, even on the smallest, most humblest projects, you know, even if I'm like running around with a, you know, documentary style crew or that kind of thing, it's, you know, sometimes you just get your nose so into the frame that you don't see and you miss stuff and you miss the big picture. It's like, you know, um, so just don't take it so seriously and don't be so myopic in your approach even, and that is philosophically and it's also practically. Um, so, and a film that people should see that um, maybe they haven't seen is I, you know, is meshes in the afternoon by my hmm. Darren, uh, the director. And, um, it was, uh, are you aware, do you know, the film or are you no. With? no, no, it's an experimental film shot in the 1930s, uh, probably on a Bolex, maybe on 35 millimeter film. And it, it's so ahead of its time. Maya Darren was a, a mythical, filmmaker and a dancer and she was uh at the time married to or dating or something a cinematographer uh hollywood cinematographer whose name i forgot uh maybe it was boris kaufman and they lived in the hollywood hills and in their house they shot this experimental film that is um so ahead of its time it's sort of the equivalent of the drone video i feel like you know um it is uh it has no narrative and but it is uh it's surreal and uh, it's a short film and um you just look up her as a person and her work and she's beyond uh amazing and you know That's talks awesome. about you know female filmmakers and uh she was way 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 ahead of the curve that awesome yeah, I, I love asking that question because most people end up saying a movie I've never seen, and then I just go pick it up on, you know, Blu-ray or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't. You know, sometimes I'll say people are like, "Oh yeah, of course, yeah, I, I, 
this is an afternoon or whatever, but I know that, you know, different generations, different crowds, it's like, oh, this is an afternoon, never heard of that one, okay, check it out. Well, and as you guys know stuff that I have no idea about, so. Well, and I, uh, I've said this before on the podcast, but I grew up um, as a, as a nerd, but also not like a film nerd. So I was watching, you know, men in black and, and the mask and stuff. And those were like the movies that I loved. So I, I, I had never seen like a criterion film until maybe five years ago when I finally started to take things seriously, you know? <laughs> and now you have an app, you know, so you can see the cri- right. The criterion is not the one. The criteria. Uh, they they have like a streamer. They have like a streamer, but I just buy the Blu-ray. I'm a, I'm still a big physical media guy because the special features. But there is a uh, criteria. I think Criterion came out. No, they. Yeah, yeah. Which is just incredible that you can just have it all. Yeah, I, I love physical media too. But, you know, I would love to have a 35 millimeter projector in my, uh, you know, Spanish mansion in the. <laughs> right. Else. <laughs> I, uh, speaking of that, actually follow up question apropos of nothing, how much free tequila do you get? Um, a decent amount <laughs> talking about the tequila thing I shot. Yeah. 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 The Maestro Nobel video. Yep. Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, I got a, a decent amount and I'm a huge fan. Uh, and I, uh, uh, again, that I was thinking of that experience when I, you said, you know, working with, I went to Mexico and shot this thing for a friend there was like 12 of us total driving around in a you know something smaller than a sprinter van and an alexa mini and an assistant a sound person you know the producers and maybe one gaffer type person somebody that had a drone and we had a blast but you know and and i'm like in the video and then there's somebody shooting me shooting a thing and i'm in the video and i'm uh you know shooting the video or video i don't know whatever you call it it, it was branded content and yeah. uh meeting chefs and going around mexico shooting this amazing architectural uh house in mexico with the colors and it was uh i had a blast but you also like you can get so you just don't forget you're like having this great trip in Mexico to just have fun doing it. Yeah. It's a, it's a really pretty spot. You know, it's only whatever, like a minute or two, but it's a, uh, I was wondering if you had shot it or if they, they were just like, we hear you love tequila. So come on over. Uh, it was a friend of mine who is a, uh, a very good friend of mine uh, named Rodolfo Villalobos, who's a, a brand, uh, you know, does branding for them. He's a, an advertising uh, executive and he was like we just come to, you know just uh, just just for fun you know and he's also friends with the owner of maestro dobel who is the uh it's the owner of uh of the big tequila company um cuervo gotcha it's his personal brand so it was a really a lot of fun that's awesome well, uh, thanks so much for coming back and spending an extra half hour with me. I, I really, really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for this conversation. Next time, uh, next time you have a movie coming, yeah, you're working on a film right now, right? I am. I am. And I'd love to talk about respect sometime too, if you want to. Oh, no. Yeah. Actually, I was, I was looking at the AMC app. I'm like, you know what? My Sunday opened up. I should just go check that out and then <laughs> send you an email and be like, so got some more questions. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks again, man. That was, that was really awesome. Peace. We'll be in touch.
Thank you. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the F&R Mapbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening.